for all of Lent will be in the week uh, that Jesus spends in Jerusalem leading up to his arrest and trial and uh, crucifixion and resurrection. But before we read this passage, I want you guys to be able to see this. So um, there's a video. This I took this video. I'm a terrible videographer. Um, so this is, look, it's moving too fast. Oh, we're dizzy. But there's Aaron walking down the stairs. These are called the teaching steps, these big steps. Um, uh, pause it here. Um, so that, what I'm pointing at, that's the Mount of Olives right over there. All down below, um, yeah, you can see there's these little, all these little um, kind of holes dug in the ground. Those would have been places for ritual baths called mikvahs. And uh, on these steps where I'm standing is, um, uh, oh, what we're looking at here, this other hill would have been called the city of David. That's where David originally built, you know, the city of Jerusalem. Then it kind of, you know, over time moved across the valley uh, behind me. But, but right behind me is where, you know, the, the giant wall around uh, Jerusalem and the temple would be right there. And on these steps, as people were approaching, this is, there's so much history on these steps. Uh, for example, there's this set of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And the Psalms of Ascent would be what the people would pray as they climbed up these steps. That's the wall leading to the temple there. Um, these steps are, are where the, um, the teachers in the law, the experts in the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they would sort of hang out there and people who would be coming to the temple to offer uh, sacrifices or to, to pray, to worship, they would likely have questions about the things that they need to do and what the proper steps are to take and whatever. And so there would be these teachers sort of hanging there and you would go and approach a teacher and ask, you know, what should I do about this or that? What do I need to sacrifice in this situation? Whatever. And of course, if all the teachers are there, they're uh, having discussions and debates with each other as well. And so Luke chapter 20 and 21 is Jesus in the, it says he's in the temple courts, but it's likely right here. And he's sort of building up a crowd and he's talking to them. And then the other teachers are overhearing and seeing the crowd and they're feeling challenged by what is happening. So that's the scene, okay? You can you can picture it now. It's such a beautiful scene being able to see, you know, the Mount of Olives to the left. You look to the right is Mount Zion. Uh, you, you know, in the middle is the city of David. It's it's just beautiful. So, the teaching steps. Let's look at Luke chapter 20. Now, one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the gospel, the chief priests and the experts in the law with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is it who gave you this authority? He answered them, I will ask you a question. And you tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from people? So they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why uh, did you not believe him? But if we say from people, all the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they replied that they did not know where it came from. Then Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by whose authority I do these things. Then he began to tell the people a parable. 
A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went on a journey for a long time. When harvest time came, he sent a slave to the tenants so that they would give him his portion of the crop. However, the tenants beat his slave and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another slave. They beat this one too, treated him outrageously, and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent still a third. They even wounded this one and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my one dear son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to one another, This is the heir. Let's kill him so the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never happen. But Jesus looked straight at them and said, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and the one on whom it falls will be crushed. Then the experts in the law And the chief priests wanted to arrest him that very hour because they realized he had told this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Then they watched him carefully and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They wanted to take advantage of what he might say so that they could deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Thus they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and show no partiality, But teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay the tribute tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their deceit and said to them, Show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. They said, Caesar's. So he said to them, Then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Thus, they were unable in the presence of the people to trap him with his own words. And stunned by his answer, they fell silent. Now, some of the Sadducees, who contend that there is no resurrection, came to him. They asked him, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, that man must marry the widow and father children for his brothers. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died without children. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose life will the woman be? For all seven had married her. So Jesus said to them, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are regarded as worthy to share in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. In fact, they can no longer die because they are equal to angels and are sons of God since they are sons of the resurrection. But even Moses revealed that the dead are raised in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live before him. Then some of the experts in the law answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they did not dare any longer to ask him anything. But he said to them, How is it that they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how can he be his son? 
As all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware the experts in the law. They like walking around in long robes and they love elaborate greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' property and as a show, make long prayers. They will receive a more severe punishment. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, as always, as we come before your word, we ask that you give us eyes that can see, ears that can hear, hearts that can understand. Lord, let us be transformed by your word. And Lord, I ask you to have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, this passage, I'm, I'm calling this whole passage the good news about Jesus' authority. Good news is another word for gospel. The good news about Jesus' authority. That's the question that they ask him, right? Who gave you this authority? By what authority are you doing these things? And really, the whole chapter, I realize we just read a lot of, um, a lot of scripture, uh, is about Jesus' authority authority. It's, it's all about his authority. He is describing his authority in the face of their challenges of his authority. And so the question is, for all of us, who gives anyone authority? How, how does that work? Who decides who's in charge? Who decides? I, I was, you know, I, if you walk into my office, you'll see, you know, oftentimes from sermon preparation, it just looks like the piles of a crazy person. There's books strewn everywhere as I'm desperately searching for this and that. But these are just, I these are like the top three books that were on my desk. Um, uh, listen to this, uh, the, about, about this book, Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment, the most powerful book that I have ever read on the judgment parables of the Lord. Lewis Smeets says that. That's a scholar that people who have, you know, maybe gone to seminary would at least recognize the name. So, oh, oh, Lewis Smeets likes this book. Um, how about this one? Uh, this is the most delightful book I have read in a long time. That's John Frame. He's a theologian. That's about a theology book. Oh, John Frame likes this book. How about this one? This is, this is the biggest one, I think. In fact, I, I've enjoyed reading this book, but sometimes it gets a little slow. And I find myself, when it gets a little slow, flipping to the back cover and rereading this, like to remind myself. And so uh, uh, this is, here's what Dallas Willard has to say about this book. I seldom have the experience of reading a book with the sense of holding a treasure in my hand. I did with this book. Oh, I mean, like, okay, so what's going on here? This is marketing, right? This is marketing. Uh, you know, any publisher is going to go out and try to find the people, the, the influencers that they think the people who might buy this book would listen to and get them to say, read this book. 
They're, the, all of those guys, Lewis Smedes and, and Dallas Willard and John Frame, they're lending their authority to the book, saying this book is an authority. You should listen to it. And the more I think about it, marketing in general is trying to convince us about authority. We know what you need. This product will help you. This, you know, this this book will guide you. This this podcast has the inform, you know, if you if you subscribe to it, it's going to benefit your life in one way or another. This is an authority that you can listen to. It's 2024. We're about to be inundated with all sorts of uh, ads and messaging in all sorts of ways about which authority we should elect to, you know, the highest office in our country. That's going to be overwhelming and dizzying and, and probably pretty frustrating a lot of the time. That is um, the, the, one of the, the, the big business of marketing. Of course, you know, it's about bottom line. But you will, you will give your money and therefore some of your submission to something if you think it's an authority that you can trust. So think about it, you know, what do you look for in someone who you're going to give authority to? You know, if, if you're being offered a couple jobs, good for you, um, and you have a chance to meet your, who, your supervisor in both places, you might compare what will it be like to work for this person as opposed to this person. You know, if you're uh, thinking about a school to attend, what will it be like to uh, study under these teachers as opposed to these teachers? Um, if you're thinking about what church to attend, what will it be like to, to be at a church with this pastor and these elders and this staff as opposed to this pastor and these elders and, and this staff? You know, elected officials, I could go on and on. How do you decide? What do you look for in the authorities that you submit to? And frankly, my whole question is making a big statement about authority that the most of the world for most of history did not take for granted. The statement that my question is making is that you get to choose who your authorities are. Like as if, you know, you know what that's subtly telling you? You're the authority. You're the boss. You decide who you submit to. You decide who rules over you. You decide. That's the subtle cultural narrative. It tells each one of us that you are your highest authority. And there's a message inside of that message. We're getting deep here. There's a message inside of that message. Who gave whoever it was the right to tell you that you are your authority? Who, you know, the person, this is, I think, the gospel of Disney is telling you that you are your own, you know, you're your own hero. Look inside. You know, that, that's the gospel of Disney. Who gave Disney the right to tell you that? The, the authority to communicate who's the authority, right? We, we, we hear the message. We like the message. And so we buy the product. We go to the movie. We, we pay attention. We, we buy into something. Hmm. We give a lot of authority without even thinking about it, to be honest. We give a lot of authority to those who make a lot of noise <laughs> or present a compelling case to those who entertain us. You know, Paul's wrestling with this in his letters. He has to write to the church in Corinth because they were giving authority to much more dynamic teachers than him. 
He basically says, look, I know I'm sort of boring and plain compared to these guys, but you've got to listen to me. Luke says that Jesus is in the temple proclaiming the gospel. That's how our passage starts. He's in the temple courts proclaiming the gospel. Uh, a lot of times when we say proclaiming the gospel, we're talking about the work that Jesus did, particularly his life, death, and resurrection. So Jesus is there proclaiming the gospel. What is he talking about? Well, we get this long scene. I've only read half of it. Next week is chapter 21 of what Jesus is saying when he's proclaiming the gospel. He's talking about his authority here. He's the king of Israel. He's the Lord of lords, and he's the Lord of life. So to understand what he's saying as the king of Israel, Lord of lords, and Lord of life, we need to start at the end of this long thing. Because first, Jesus is answering a bunch of questions. And then he makes a statement about the other authorities who are there on the steps. And this is in your face. He's talking about the false authority around him. With this, he opens with this line, beware the experts in the law. There's a lot of people standing there who are them. They're like, what? (laughs) Beware the experts in the law. There's three reasons to beware of them that he lists. You know, he talks about their long robes and their banquets and all of that. Beware the experts in the law who love accolades and privileges. Their motivation is for um, the, the accolades that will come. Think about it. Multiple times in the chapter, you have them deciding to sort of hold back on challenge, challenging Jesus because he has the crowd with him at the moment. And that's who their authority is. They love the accolades and privileges. But secondly, they devour widows' property. What? And I mean, that's a, that is so harsh. They devour widows' property. He's saying they are abusing and taking advantage of the very people that in their position of authority they should protect, the most vulnerable people in their care. And, and so he's talking about widows here. And we didn't read into chapter 21. Um, it was already a lot of scripture, <laughs> I understand. But but. He, he finishes this statement, and he mentions wit- widows, and then chapter one opens, chapter 21 opens like this. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all offered their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had to live on. Remember that scene about the widow. We'll come back to that. The third thing that Jesus says about why we should beware of the teachers in the law is because as a show, they make long prayers. Now, long prayers aren't necessarily bad, I hope, um, but they're doing it as a show. They're not praying to God. They're praying for themselves, praying to fill the airwaves with their holiness so that people know how great they are. That's their method of keeping authority. And of course, they will receive a more severe punishment. 
Jesus says, gosh, you, you know, over and over again, just like the prophets, those people that God has put in charge will be judged more strictly, more severely. That is terrifying to me. Okay, so in contrast to that, what does he say about true authority? Again, he talks about himself as the king of Israel, the Lord of lords, and the Lord of life. <clears throat> Let's look at these three things. First thing, true authority. He talks about himself as the king of Israel. This is, in some sense, a religious authority or an ethnic authority. The Israelites would certainly not have separated out religion from other parts of their life the way we do. Um, but <clears throat> So he's talking about his religious authority, and that's the question that they're asking him at the beginning. Who gave you this authority? Like, what are your credentials, man? What, what school did you study in? Um, who, who's vouching for you? You know what this whole thing is in Presbyterian terms? It's an ordination trial. This is what we do. We love this. I, this is my favorite part of Presbytery. I love being one of the experts in the law, sitting in the crowd, and there's someone up there, and they're terrified, and they've studied for this, and, and, and they're trying to remember the entire Bible and all of theology and all of church history and everything that they need to say about themselves all at once, and you can ask them anything, and you're trying. Okay, you're not supposed to be trying, but you're trying to trip them up, you know? You're like, get, like, you just get a little exciting. It's fun if they, if they make a misstep, right? So, yeah, I mean, also, like, at that moment, this could be a really wonderful, brilliant person, but at that moment, if you're one of the presbyters who's examining them, you have so much power, you know? You can ask them a question that trips them up and then vote no, and ruin their life plan, you know? I mean, my gosh, not that that, I'm not, I mean, that's not what I'm thinking about. I'm saying that could be, somebody could be thinking about that. Okay, so, all right, who gave you this authority? Uh, so Jesus has two responses to that question. Number one, who authorized John's baptism? He asks, you know, he says, I'm going to answer your question with a question. Who, you know, where did John's authority come from? Who authorized his baptism? He's, he's saying uh, a couple subtle things here. One, he's saying, I'm the guy that John said I am. That's what he's saying. Remember what John said he was? This is the Lamb of God. This is the one that I'm preparing the way for him. That's what John said about Jesus. So Jesus is saying, look, if John's message is from heaven, then I'm the Messiah. Boom. All right? So that's, that's, um, that's at the heart of what he is saying. And he's also exposing, like I said, the, the teachers in the law's true authority by doing this. Their true authority is the crowds. They get all their power from people giving them power. And then... The next way, so, you know, they, they say, oh, we won't, we don't know. <laughs> you know, they try, they get out of it by saying, we don't know. Uh, so he says, well, then I won't tell you where my authority is. But I will tell you this story about this landowner, um, which is all about where his authority comes from. 
So he does actually answer the question. And in the story, it's this, this uh, strange story. You know, the, the obvious villains in the story are these tenants who lease the land. They know what they owe. There's, pro- there's a clear agreement about what they're supposed to do. But the landowner is far away, and, and they think they can just keep it all for themselves by just sending away the, you know, when, you know, when the IRS agent shows up, they just lock the door and kick him out. Um, they, they, don't let, uh, they, they don't let them collect. And so at the end of the story, there's the, the landowner says, I'm going to send my one dear son. And then they decide to kill him. And, and people are shocked at this. Like, what a terrible story. How could this ever be? And it says the experts in the law, they know exactly what Jesus is saying. They get it. They know that he told that story against them, that they are the tenants, that what they are entrusted with is God's vineyard, and that Jesus is the one dear son. He is naming his authority right there. I am the son of the landowner, which, of course, would be blasphemy for them. Uh, we, uh, we see in this scene Jesus' motivation for his authority. You know, the, the, the false teachers, their, their motivation was uh, the accolades that came from it. Jesus' motivation is to reclaim what's rightfully his. His motivation in the story, the son is sent into a dangerous situation. You think the, son, the one dear son doesn't know that the servants have been beaten and abused when they went to try to collect? You think he doesn't know that he's putting his life on the line? He's saying out of devotion to the father, that's part of his motivation, and to claim what is rightfully his, he's going into the danger zone, the vineyard that's been leased out to these tenants. His motivation is to claim what's rightfully his. What is rightfully his? What is the vineyard? In the prophet Isaiah's words, indeed, Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. Israel is the vineyard. God's people, that's who he's there to claim. His father's land and crop is his inheritance, and his father's land and crop is the people. What's your Israel? You know, Jesus is the king of Israel. What's your Israel? (laughs) One way to think of this is your tribe, uh, the people you identify with, the, the people from whom you draw your identity. Maybe that's your family, maybe it's your ethnic group, maybe it's the the team you root for or the church you attend, wouldn't that be wild? Maybe it's your political party, maybe it's your your city, the list could go on. The question is, who are your people? Um, You know, we're told that we get to choose all of that stuff. I'm my own authority, I represent myself. But what Jesus is claiming here is that he is the rightful owner of that of that space, that group, and he's come to claim it. And of course, this is a terrifying story because it says that those tenants will be thrown out. They'll be killed. They'll be destroyed, and it'll be given to others. So what do we do if we believe him that he is the king of Israel? Well, we submit to him. We submit to him. Next, 
Jesus says he's the Lord of Lords, the next part of his authority. The next question is another one meant to trip him up. And Luke tells us that very plainly. They sent spies who were trying to trap him in his words, trying basically to get him arrested by Rome if he answers this question wrong. And so that's when they ask him the question about taxes to Caesar. Is it right to pay these taxes? And frankly, the question is a lose-lose. He could either say, uh, no, it's not right to pay taxes to Caesar. You know, I'm the Messiah. we're, We're taking Jerusalem back. In which case... You know, Pilate would snap his fingers and the Roman soldiers would sweep in and and he'd be gone in an instant. Or he could say, yeah, it's fine. Pay taxes to Caesar. And they would say, well, then you're not the Messiah. What are you you even doing here? What what authority do you bring with you? It seems like a lose-lose. But Jesus answers the question brilliantly. Philosophers call this escaping the horns of a dilemma. You know, this way you're destroyed, this way you're destroyed. What does he do in the middle of it? He takes a coin and he asks, whose image is on it? Just like we have president's faces on our coins, Caesar's face was on Roman coins. Now, no religious teacher who's on those steps with Jesus would miss what he's doing here because the word image is a profoundly biblical word. It's a profoundly theological word. It speaks of their very identity. As soon as you ask whose image is on it, they are thinking of Genesis chapter 1, where God says that he created man and woman in his image and likeness. Jesus says, whose image and likeness is on the coin? Great. That, That belongs to Caesar and give to God what's God's whose image and likeness is on you is on Caesar himself Alex pointed that out this week at Bible study I mean Caesar himself bears the image and likeness of God he belongs to God in saying this Jesus is not only escaping this difficult question but he's saying guys God's kingdom, God's rule, God's authority, it is on a completely different plane than the world of taxes and empires, which is so minuscule. He shrugs at that. Forget that. That's not, no, no, no. Our lives belong to him. He's the Lord of lords. The fruit here of Jesus's authority is that he sees and restores the image of God. That's what he's about. If we allow Jesus to operate in his true authority, then your identity as the image of God begins to be restored. That's the the promise that's hidden inside of this little debate about taxes. And think about it. He looks at a widow, the the last, least, lowest person, this, this woman putting two pennies into the offering box. And he restores her image. She is doing more as a worshiper than any of the wealthy people who are putting in large gifts. Frankly, the subtle implication is that the temple leaders are going to misuse her offering and neglect her, even though she's putting in everything that she has. We submit to Jesus because he created us 
to represent him. Third, Jesus says he's the Lord of life. The third part about his authority he, is he's the Lord of life. He doesn't just stop. Um, oh, no, let, let, let me go back. They, they ask him a third question about resurrection. Um, this, is, this is a big debate. You know, <clears throat> Lauren called herself an ex-Baptist this morning. That's a fun little moment. Um, and there's, a, you know, the funny, I have lots of Baptist friends. I love them, all right, so... Yeah, this is me saying I'm allowed to talk about them. Um, so, you know, the, the debate between, the classical debate between Baptists and Presbyterians is, do, is it appropriate to baptize babies or not? <laughs> um, and uh, Presbyterians say, yeah, we should do that. And I've, you know, worked to convince some of you about that. And, and Baptists say, no. And so that's the debate that's like kind of similar <clears throat> to the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees thought all the references in their scriptures to the resurrection, to the the people coming back to life, were symbolic. They were symbolic of the rise of Israel again, the return of Israel, the restoration of the people. But it would be whoever is alive at the time, not people who had died. And the Pharisees said, no, 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 this is literal. This is talking about people actually literally coming back to life. So there's this big debate about the resurrection. So, So they ask him, the Sadducees, what they think is their defeater question. They, they, they find a way to show how absurd resurrection is because we've got this law in Scripture about what should happen with marriage. And, and so, uh, so this, this woman cycles through seven husbands who all die, doesn't have a child by any of them, so they all sort of have equal you know, standing in terms of whose wife she should be, and so whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And, you know, what they're wanting to say is, like, do you see how ridiculous resurrection is? That's what they're wanting to say. It's, uh, it's uh, ad absurdum is the, the um, device that they're using. They're showing how absurd. But Jesus, he just, you know, usually he, you know, kind of finds a third way. He just sides right with the Pharisees. Like, no, 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 listen to... here's some basic scriptures to prove that God is the God of the living. And he says this passage from Exodus chapter 3, the the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he's he's referring to them sort of in present tense. They're living, you know, they're, they're living before him. Jesus is using that as a surprising proof of resurrection. And so they, they think, oh, that, that's great. You know, when, when some of them say, you've answered well, I'm thinking that's probably the Pharisees who are like, yeah. And then Jesus keeps going. His answer keeps going. He, you know, oh, anyway, while we're talking about people living before him, you know, what about this line that David uses in, in Psalm 110? David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my, you know, sit here while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Who's David talking to there? We've always said the Messiah is supposed to be David's son, but David is praying about his Lord. And uh, scholars say this is the first time Psalm 110 has been used as a messianic psalm, and then it becomes very common after that. Um, So Jesus is digging a little bit deeper in After he proves resurrection, he says, and in that realm, outside of this realm of life and death, 
in that realm, I have been ruling forever. I am the Lord of life. That's his overall response. He is the Lord of all. Friends, we submit to Jesus because he rules over life and death. All of these other things, all of these other authorities, all, all of the cool things on the back of books or the commercials about which brand of medicine you should buy or whatever, all of those are trying to say, this will help your life here and now. This might extend your life. This will make your life a little happier, a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more fun, whatever. And Jesus says, set all that aside. What I am offering to you shows that all of that is a tiny drip in the ocean of your existence. And so if you get my authority right, you will live with me in joy forever. This subtly is about the method of Jesus' authority, but it's not quite clear what it's saying about the method. And to understand the method of Jesus' authority, we need to go back to the random thing he says after the parable of the tenants and the son. It's verse 17 and 18. In those verses, he is quoting Psalm 118 about the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone, the stone the builders rejected. And he, said, he talks about everyone who stumbles over that stone and then he talks about the one on whom the stone falls. Everyone who stumbles and the one on whom the stone falls. So I think he is inviting us. This is the Mike Wright interpretation, so you can wrestle with this. But I think he's inviting all of his listeners to stumble over the stone. He's saying, look, here it is. It, it's been rejected. It's been cast aside for the moment. But you need to recognize what it is. You need to stumble over it. How do you stumble over the stone? You let him rearrange your motivations. Does Jesus have authority over you in a merely religious sense? You know, how that small part of your life? Does Jesus impact your marketplace and political decisions? Does Jesus, uh, do, do you grasp his authority over your life and death? You know, for for me, actually, I need to ask a deeper set of questions. What are all of the ways that I have taken authority that actually belongs to Jesus and given it to myself or others? In what way do I find my identity in places that don't come from him? Aligning and choosing authority is a daily task, friends. In the world that we live in, I don't know if it would have been a daily task for people in the first century, but I got to talk to people in the Littleton metro area in 2024. We are, get, we are presented every day with the option for who our authority is. Every day. And so Jesus invites us to stumble over his. Otherwise, we are drawn to the strong or the brilliant or the beautiful or the enticing, or the entertaining, and we give our time and our resources and ourselves to them. To stumble over the stone is to say, Lord, make your name holy in my life. Let your kingdom come. 
let your will be done. Those are authority prayers. Those are asking for him to be an authority over us. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. We could do that. We could stumble over the stone. We could wrestle with all the ways that we've taken authority away. We could confess it all, or we can get caught. And all of you know, parents, you know this, it's way better when your kids tell you something than them getting caught. You know, this, this is, exists in every sphere of life. You know, it, it, it is just so much better to confess than to get caught. It's going to go better for you in the, the decisions about what happened if you confess rather than getting caught. I think one thing Jesus is talking about when he says, yeah, the one on whom the stone falls will be crushed. They'll be caught having given their authority, having hitched their wagons to the wrong horse. Uh, This is a scary statement about judgment. I mean, all throughout Luke, Jesus is talking about the Son of Man, and it's a reference to this sort of weird scene in the prophet, the prophecies of Daniel, the visions that Daniel was having. But one of the things that Daniel saw is this, this big statue that represented all of the empires and had all these different sort of layers to it that represented the different empires. And then this one thing, uh, this like stone is cast sort of from heaven and smashes the giant statue. He's kind of referring to that. And it's a judgment on all of these authorities, all of these empires. No other king will save you. Every other king, every other authority is ultimately in it for themselves. And just as the master allowed his servant uh, to live with his, dis- his distorted image of the master, that was in last week's sermon, you know, the, 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 the guy who... Uh, invested coins and then left and the one guy says well I know that you're really hard I know that you're a bad guy so I didn't invest he allows him to live with that distorted image just as he allowed him to do it so too will Jesus allow us to submit to other authorities there's this uh, if you've read through the chronicles of Narnia the last book is kind of the strangest book and very exciting it's called the last battle and in it this monkey and this donkey uh, find a lion skin and, and they try to convince everyone that the donkey is Aslan. Um, and, uh, but then uh, as their influence grows and all of this happens, uh, the monkey, who's really the mastermind, the, the, the donkey's pretty bummed about what's happening, but that's beside the point. Um, the, uh, the monkey starts to tell people, oh, Aslan is also this, he's the same as this other god that, that, the, that the, this other people group has been worshiping. And, and so, um, so they kind of, br- he brings them together and he wants everyone to be terrified. At, he's saying how angry Aslan is and how, you know, and, and how fierce he is. And you better submit to everything I say because I'm his representative is what the monkey is saying. He's being the false teacher and he's getting a lot of accolades and a lot of influence for a while. And at the end, when Aslan shows up, he also allows from the tent where they were hiding the donkey, this other gruesome beast that has the name of the other God to appear. And he comes out and destroys the people who've been worshiping him. It's, they're caught. They've given their authority to someone else and Aslan allows it to happen 
He allowed it to come into existence. He allowed them to live in that reality that they chose. But there's a third thing that this means about the method of Jesus. It's interesting to me that Jesus says, you know, anyone who stumbles over the stone, this, but the one on whom it falls will be crushed. Why does he use the singular there? Who is this one? Friends, we are all caught. We are all caught. And Jesus, this very week, for saying these very things, will be crushed. So here's the question about authority that's in front of us today. What type of authority do you look for? Do you look for one that's really impressive that tells you, yeah, uh, you know, give me a little bit of your resources, whatever, and, and, and I'll make your life better. You know, vote for me, I'll, I'll make your life better. Vote, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make the economy better, I'll, whatever. Do we, do we give our allegiance to those types of authorities that, hey, for them, it's really good for them if they're in authority? Or do we give our allegiance to a king who literally dies to save his enemies? That is the message of Christianity in a nutshell. That is the gospel that Jesus is proclaiming. That's the type of authority we're talking about here. A king who dies to save his enemies, to rescue them. That's what's being offered to us here. The final appeal of Jesus' authority. He comes to claim what's his in the vineyard. And he lets the tenants kill him. Why? So that he can share the vineyard with them when, it, when his death restores them. That's the story that Jesus told around the table at the Last Supper. On the very night that he was betrayed, the very night that he was going to be, begin being crushed by the stone, Jesus gathered his friends around him and he took the bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take this and eat it, all of you, in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, his method of authority until he comes. Friends, it's worth it to throw in our lot with one who dies to save us. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare our hearts and minds to come to this table, I pray that you would reveal to us, that you would help us to recognize all of the things that we have given authority in our lives. Help us to see them clearly. Help us to see the ways that we have claimed authority for ourselves, even to our own harm. And Lord, as we walk to this table, we trade all of that. We lay all of that down for your rule in our lives. Lord, would you fill your people with your spirit, with your guidance, with your love, with your mercy as we come to this table.
and eat this bread and drink from this cup. In Jesus' name, amen.